Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market glamour to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing saying attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine over the long run. In other words, emotion and expectations drive short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations determine returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, how did the markets fare in the first quarter of 2022? We will also discuss alternative investments, including the specialized strategy, event-driven investing. That's with our guest, Yoav Sharon, Portfolio Manager at Treehouse Capital Management. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start with a look at the markets. We're recording this just after the close of the first quarter. How did the markets fare? Well, what a first quarter that was. It was pretty exceptional. Stocks were down when you look at the U.S. market or the global market, down just over 5%. The bond market was down nearly 6%. So you didn't really get diversification benefits there. When we look at other diversifiers, commodities had a great quarter. They were up over 26%, but of course, they have a lot of volatility. If you look at diversified alternative strategies, they were basically flat on the quarter. And then when you look at diversified alternatives and you compare it to the bond market, Alternatives have now outperformed at the end of the first quarter over the last one year, three year, five years, and 10 years. This would be a perfect time to talk to a manager on alternative strategies. Don't you think? <laughs> I, I do. All right. Well, let's bring in our guest. Yoav Sharon is a portfolio manager at Treehouse Capital Management in Chicago. Yoav, welcome to The Weighing Machine. Thanks for having me. All right, Yoav. So the first question is the tough one. It's the walk-up song. We need to have the mood set here for this interview. What can we hear in that background? Yeah, no, indeed. Uh, lots of pressure with this one. I was given some uh, some guidelines by some colleagues, but I'm going to go with Gimme Shelter by the Rolling Stones. You know, just that opening riff is something that's pretty fantastic. So that one always gets me going. That'd be my walk-up song. Smartly done. I like it. Pretty Absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Well, it is smartly done. And that leads me to my next question, which is you're a fellow graduate of Northwestern University. Indeed. So... Yes. First things first, 2021 was pretty bad for Wildcats football. Are you expecting better things in 2022? Yeah, it was 2021 was not great. 2020 obviously was an excellent year. But you know, we're, as you know, kind of used to it. Every third or fourth year, there's kind of a clunker in there. And then we, we do a pretty good job of bouncing back. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we're back on the uptick next year. All right. Well, as I said, you received a bachelor's in economics at Northwestern, and then you went on to get your MBA at the Kellogg School of Management. And now you spent the last nine years at Driehaus. So tell us more about your background and what you do in your current position. Sure, sure. Yeah. So I got involved in the financial markets straight out of undergrad. I was in derivatives, actually. I was trading options exchange here in Chicago, the CBOE. Eventually, I've, uh, well, like you said, I went back to school, I got my MBA, and then realized I wanted to kind of go into more fundamental side of the business, investment management, asset management, kind of different cadence and speed to that work versus versus trading on the floor. And then I came over to Driehaus almost 10 years ago, originally came to spearhead kind of some efforts that the firm was expanding on in volatility and options, derivatives, etc. And since then, over the years, have gotten more involved in the equity and credit markets 
Treehouse is a boutique investment manager here in Chicago with about $14 billion in assets under management across a couple different strategies. Our firm was founded by Richard Treehouse back in 1982. He was one of the pioneers in growth momentum investing. Myself, I'm on the alternative side of, the, of the, our platform under which we have an event-driven strategy, which I co-manage, and we've been managing in mutual fund format since 2013. All right. So the one area you mentioned is, of course, event-driven investing. Can you explain what that is? Yeah. So at its most basic, most simply, really, we're looking to take advantage of companies that are undergoing or are going through corporate action and are going to experience some sort of significant change that will unlock value via said corporate action. The fund employs a multi-strategy and multi-asset class approach to investing in venture investing. But the easiest way to think about it is we're focused on idiosyncratic catalysts or events that we think are going to unlock value. And we're tasked with obviously identifying those events, but also understanding how that value is going to accrue within the capital stack. So at its most basic, it's a fund that's focused on alpha generation through you know capitalizing on idiosyncratic corporate events, as opposed to traditional long-only investing, where you know obviously beta kind of and market exposure drives the lion's share of returns. Idiosyncratic is the key word there, because I mean, it's quirky, which means its return stream, of course, is different than conventional stocks and bonds. And that is the magic of the diversification benefit. So it's listed that there's really three different underlying strategies within the event-driven investing. And it is arbitrage, opportunistic credit, and catalyst-driven equities. Can we walk through each one of these, what they kind of mean? So first, can we hit on arbitrage? Sure. What is it? What does it look like? Yeah. So first, I'll make the distinction within event-driven investing, there's obviously many different styles and sub-strategies. So we employ, as I mentioned, kind of a multi-strategy, multi-asset class approach versus some managers uh, say strictly only do merger arbitrage, or they only do activism, you know, very siloed, very specific. We were able to tap in across this broad spectrum, this catalyst spectrum of events that we can tap from. And within that, we have three primary, you know, sub strategies, if you will, that we pull from in terms of finding opportunities. So as you mentioned, the first one is arbitrage. That's primarily merger arbitrage and SPAC arbitrage. So think of scenarios that have very, very low beta, very uncorrelated, a lower absolute return profile, but also, you know, fairly insulated from broader markets. So, you know, one company is getting bought out by another company. There's some sort of deal spread that's associated with the transaction. We'll look to capitalize on that or alternatively in SPAC arbitrage, pre-deal SPAC arbitrage might be yielding some sort of a nominal amount to a deal announcement. And then you have the upside optionality that is maybe being mispriced with an associated deal that would get announced that's positive. So really, those arbitrage opportunities are, are focused on announced transactions or announced situations, if you will. Okay, gotcha. All right. So now when we get to the credit market, so you're looking for opportunities within credit. What does that look like? Yeah. So within opportunistic credit, we're essentially investing in the loans and bonds of companies that either have taken or are in the process of taking action to improve their financial condition. So a lot of times you'll have troubled capital structure, but a good business and a company essentially needs to go through a self-help story where they're addressing their debt stack, where they're pushing out their maturities, or they're just really undergoing an inflection in their life cycle that is going to accrete value to the credit. And we're able to take advantage of that as the company is either improving their financial strength or coming into a new phase of their life cycle, if you will. Alternatively, there are ways to play arbitrage situations via credit instruments as well. 
that's something that we tap into and utilize. And again, you know, kind of juxtapose it versus a merger arbitrage only fund, they might be forced to go into the equity arbitrage spread. That's less appealing than perhaps the credit is implying from a probability standpoint. So that flexibility allows us to move within asset classes and across asset classes to really capitalize on the best risk adjusted return opportunities. So then the last category is catalyst driven equities. What do you mean by that? Those are generally situations where an event is being anticipated or potentially on the horizon, but might not yet be definitive. It's also kind of the the broadest bucket, if you will. So this could be anything from companies that are undertaking a corporate action of separation or splitting off of a business or divesting some asset that's going to, you know, re-rate the entire business. Companies that have gone through a merger and acquisition, and now there's a pro forma story to the equity because there's synergy opportunities, both on the cost side or on the revenue side. So, you know, really kind of captures a lot of corporate activity and it varies from soft catalysts all the way to, to hard catalysts. But again, it's really focused on an anticipated event that's upcoming, that's going to unlock value, and that we can kind of point to as to how that's going to accrue for the equity. Hey, before I hand the ball off to Robin, the uh, one question here is like, so these three different categories, it sounds like you're pretty flexible between the three, but is there kind of a rough expectation how much you'll have to each of those three categories over time? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So everything we do is really bottoms up organic. We're trying to identify and isolate specific catalysts that we can take advantage of. So there's no kind of top-down populating saying we need to find 25% of the portfolio in credit. It's all happening from an organic basis. And really, one of the reasons we established the fund as a multi-asset class fund was to be able to take advantage of the shifts in opportunity sets. So when one opportunity becomes limited or gets overextended on a risk reward basis, we can, you know, naturally we pull back from that because we're not finding as good of opportunities and we kind of go and, and allocate capital somewhere else that's more fertile. To give you a sense of, you know, really broad strokes and some context as to historically how that's looked, equity catalysts have been the largest portion of our portfolio historically. It's just been a function of the opportunity set and kind of it's a bigger catch-all. That's generally been 30 to 60% of the portfolio. And then credit in the arbitrage sub-strategies have historically ranged from high single digits all the way up to maybe a third or 40% of the portfolio. And today, as we sit, we kind of have a pretty balanced opportunity set. We're essentially just under 50% in equity and roughly low 20s, 23-ish percent in both credit and arbitrage opportunity. So again, what that tells us is that there's a fairly decent opportunity set that's broad and no one particular area stands out with respect to the others. So we're in line with our historical positioning, if you will. Gotcha. And how does event-driven investing compare to other types of alternative investing? Again, this is a really important point. I mean, there's obviously been in the last 10, 15 years of proliferation of alternatives investing, some both in the public markets, but also in the private markets. And it really alternatives can can mean you know, almost anything, anything from real estate, natural resources, infrastructure, private credit, private equity. I think what's specific to event-driven investing within the quote-unquote alts universe is the fact that really the focus here is about alpha and alpha generation and compounding absolute returns at a respectable rate, you know, equity-like returns, but without the exposure to market gyrations, market turmoil, as we've seen here in Q1. Whereas if you think about other potentially other forms of 
alts investing, but also traditional long only investing, the lion's share of those returns are coming from beta. So, you know, if you had kind of like a, a pie chart that told you where your returns are being composed of, you'd have the, the Pac-Man figure for traditional investing would be beta and then a small sliver would be alpha. And and really with event-driven investing, what we're trying to do in the focus and in the core of the fund is to really invert that, to make the lion's share of the returns being driven by alpha generation. And then, you know, to the extent that we can eliminate as much or nearly all of the market exposure of the beta, we go out and hedge those unintended or unwanted exposures. Yep. So on that point, so what does the beta look like for the strategy over time? Or what does the relative volatility look like compared yeah. to the overall stock market? Yeah. So historically, our volatility has been less than half of the, you know, take your broad market index, S&P or Russell or NASDAQ. From a beta perspective, we've over the last handful of years, typically lived around a 0.3 beta to, again, you know, S&P a little bit less to the Russell, just given its higher volatility. What that allows us to do is, again, produce a differentiated return stream, one that's uncorrelated. Obviously, the lower volatility is something that a lot of our investors appreciate, particularly, you know, in periods such as the first quarter of, of 2020, too. But really, it's an uncorrelated return stream that ultimately gets you to similar to equity-like returns, just in a much different manner. And therefore, investors or allocators can use us not only as a standalone strategy, because certainly there's plenty of AUM, particularly in the LP space, that is devoted to event-driven strategies. It's nearly a trillion of AUM across LP strategies. But it allows allocators and investors to also utilize us as a diversifier or a complement, both to their equity exposures, but also to their fixed income exposures particularly when you look at a period like now when inflation is obviously top of mind to everybody and we're having readings that we haven't seen in 40 years. And to your point at the beginning of, of the podcast, you know, traditional fixed income is not providing the benefit that historically it would have, you know, either in a 60-40 portfolio or just broadly as a diversifier or as a protector of downside. On that point, so in terms of so how investors are allocating to the strategies, so let's just kind of take that classic 60-40 balanced portfolio, 60% stocks, 40% fixed income. How would they use event-driven investing strategies? Would they just take it all out of fixed income? I mean, what are you typically seeing? And are those allocations changing recently? We see it from both sides, to be frank. Historically, and I think it had been a function of just the massive tailwind that fixed income it had typically, or historically, we've seen it come from equity replacement, actually. So investors who uh, maybe want to either be a little bit more defensive or want to create a differentiated return stream, something that's uncorrelated to their entire portfolio. You know, you can, again, to a, from a 60-40, you can take from the 60 and, and utilize a venture to replicate similar returns just in a much different manner and, and much better downside protection in volatile markets. I think what we're going to see going forward, now that it appears that we've entered quite a different environment in terms of inflation and the outlook for fixed income... I think now people who are, you know, probably in these coming days opening up their first quarter statements and not understanding why their fixed income lost more money than their equity portion. And, you know, for example, investment grade credit had its worst quarter ever, as in ever, <laughs> you know, coming into the year that the investment grade index was yielding two and a quarter percent, you know, right before we started talking, it's probably down nine percent year to date. So essentially, in a matter of one quarter's time, you've eliminated four years worth of your coupon. So a fixed income investor who was counting on generating income for the next four years at a rather 
meager rate has now been wiped out for the next four years. I think we're increasingly going to see people understanding that the 60-40, which worked great for the past 40 years when rates were declining to you know, historic lows, that now that proposition going forward is going to be materially different for them. And so we often ask our guests how their experience impacts the way that they invest personally. So I'm curious, for your personal investments, do you invest in event-driven investments? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, look, I've been in financial markets for my entire professional career, which is now entering its third decade. So, you know, I have a passion for this stuff. I'm in, I'm invested where myself and everyone on the team, we're all invested in our strategies. It serves a meaningful portion of, you know, our liquid exposure. I think to your question, it has a seat at the table. So there are going to be times, you know, when you're going to want to have heavily heavy exposure to equities and you're going to have time where you're probably going to want to dial that back or you want to have something that you think is uncorrelated. So that's really the benefit of a strategy like ours is really this diversification factor, this uncorrelated return stream that, you know, oftentimes in in months where markets are down, I think February was another example of this, more than half the time we actually produce a positive return in those months. And going back to kind of 2016, we've been able to outperform broad markets, you know, the S&P as a proxy by over 5,500 basis points in those months when markets are selling off. So, you know, for myself personally, that's that's an important attribute, but also for our investors and our clients who utilize us, that is a, a strong point for them to know that, you know, not having to take the drawdown allows them to then begin to return compounding capital from a higher base. Yeah. So your investment process is obviously very bottoms up you know, looking at you know, individual securities. But my question is, do you generate and use forecasts for any investment decision-making? So, you know, the fund obviously is focused on idiosyncratic catalysts, so specific events, things that are shielded or insulated from the broad market. That's in an ideal world. Obviously, as we populate our portfolio with a bunch of idiosyncratic investments, we populate or we aggregate certain exposures that we either are uncomfortable with or are unintended. So that stuff we will actively go out and hedge. You know, we're essentially trying to eliminate all the market sensitivity, the beta exposure to the extent that it's economically feasible. That said, we can't hedge it all out in a cost-effective manner. So there's some residuals and that might color how we manage the portfolio. In addition, I think while we don't officially create any sort of, you know, top-down forecast, we're obviously well aware of it and, you know, have, can't be agnostic of the macro. But I think where it really shows itself is in the type of events that become topical or germane. So when you have an environment, you know, it seems like lately every year has been unprecedented. But when you have an environment where there's big regime change, or, you know, when there was a pandemic, or when inflation is impacting, you know, long duration assets, that's certainly going to have a big impact on the type of investment opportunities we're going to come across. You know, for example, if investment grade sells off pretty substantially, that's going to have ripple effects into the rest of credit. Or if base rates rise significantly, like we've seen so far year to date, that's going to have an impact on not only financings for deals, but that's also going to have an impact on the risk premia that investors are going to require for a merger ARB deal. You know, it's one thing if you're getting zero in the bank account, it's another if you're getting two and a half percent in the bank account to take no risk, you know, essentially. So it impacts the types of investments the macro does. And particularly, you know, when you, 
you know, beneath the surface, this market has been a lot more turbulent and choppy than maybe the headline numbers might show someone, you know, even though the S&P is down 5% year to date, all things considered, we're, we're near all time highs. But, you know, with a lot of pockets of the market really having been impacted, whether it's equity capital markets and funding, or just particular industries or sectors being impact in an outsized manner, we've seen activism return, for example. So now we're seeing a lot more activism and shareholders agitating for companies to take action to unlock value because, you know, right now the macro isn't just in, you know, quote unquote, up into the right environment where everything just goes up and every management team can say, look, our our share price is going up. So certainly the macro plays a factor, but, you know, we come to that at the end of the process. Everything we're doing is trying to, you know, again, laser focused on finding events in quotation marks that are going to unlock value. And during periods of, of market turbulence, instability or uncertainty, you know, we tend to really focus ever more on hard catalysts and events that are near term in, in nature so that we can insulate ourselves even more from, you know, the market, the market turmoil, the moves. So I have two more outlook sort of questions. So first of all, it's just the outlook for mergers and acquisitions activity moving forward. I think the M&A activity is going to be pretty robust for the rest of the year. Yeah, I mean, we've we've been off to a decent start. You know, a little bit different this year has just been the fact that there haven't been the mega, mega deals a few years past. But certainly the pace of, of mergers and acquisitions has been relatively healthy and relatively positive. You know, there's a lot of strategics. There's a lot of sponsors that are sitting on a lot of cash. They have to put that cash to work. So, you know, not only financial sponsors by a private equity, but also a lot of corporations that have just gone through a lot of, you know, healthy years and are sitting on a lot of cash. And, you know, they're probably facing prospects of maybe not as robust of a growth or top line or bottom line outlook as they thought maybe six months ago. So, you know, the M&A is a way to continue to to grow and evolve and, you know, assuming it's done well, unlock shareholder value. So we've been seeing a decent level of activity. I'd say the the risk premium there hasn't been reset to a crazily attractive level, but it's certainly starting to or has gotten a little bit better. What's actually really interesting is the current administration in the White House and the current regulatory administration, both the FTC and the DOJ, have really taken a hard line approach with respect to mergers and acquisitions. So that's something that we're really keenly aware of and focusing a lot of our attention on there. To date, it hasn't really derailed rational deals or deals that should be allowed to proceed on their merits. But, you know, anytime you have regulators or the government telling you, we don't want to see deals or we don't want this to happen, you know, you at least have to heed the warning and recalibrate your approach. So again, fortunately, rational heads have prevailed so far, but I think that's definitely something that's worth watching closely. Yep. Now, what is your outlook on the credit markets, either investment grade or high yield? And the reason why I ask is it's kind of roundabout way. I feel it's this kind of a canary in the coal mine sort of markets. If if they're under a lot of stress, that probably means like the stock market's under a lot of stress. And so obviously we had some turbulence in the first quarter. What is your outlook moving forward for credit? Yeah, no, there definitely was some turbulence there. And particularly probably early to mid-March, we really were kind of at the precipice of credit had started cracking and it looked like if we were going to experience a little bit more turbulence, it was really going to widen. From there, actually, you know, since mid-March, we've kind of reversed and things have become calmer. But your point makes a lot of sense. I think what's really important to keep in mind, both 
in investment grade and in high yield credit is the starting point, even after we saw rates rise a little bit last year. Coming into the year, I think high yield was yielding four and a quarter percent and maybe like a 330 spread, you know, the spread over, over treasuries. That's now at 6% all in yield to maturity on the index. Similarly, investment grade credit started the year at two and a quarter percent. You know, I referenced that four years have kind of been wiped out. Today it sits at about 4%, a little bit more. So the reason I bring that up is those absolute levels, the starting points were so low, were so depressed for all the central bank actions that have been taken over the last year and, you know, QE, et cetera. So this resetting, if you will, or recalibrating is still by historic standards, we're still relatively low for an all-in yield, if you would think about it. So I think what's important to keep a watch on is, particularly in this type of inflation environment, is, you know, where are the levels that corporations are able to come back to market to refinance? We've certainly seen equity capital markets, you know, IPOs, SPACs, things like that kind of follow-on offerings. That has, you know, kind of ground to a halt here in Q1 and probably starts opening up here in the second quarter. But I would use or I would keep an eye on the ability of corporations to tap the corporate capital markets, the corporate credit capital markets to provide insight as to whether the health of, you know, fixed income investors is there or not. So again, all that to say is we still are relatively in a pretty low interest rate environment. It feels like and we have gone up a lot, but you know, anyone who is forty or older probably remembers periods where Certainly rates across any type were much, much higher. So that would be, I think, if we continue to increase and particularly the speed at which, you know, the velocity at which the rates rise is going to be potentially problematic. So I think, you know, high yield kind of has is a little bit different, but certainly for investment grade, you know, looking at inflation readings that are the highest since the 80s and just what they're facing going forward, you know, that I wouldn't love to be having to invest in fixed income like investment grade credit right now. Sounds like we're investing more in driven strategies to me. Right, Robin? That's right. (laughs) Exactly. You teed me up. Thanks. (laughs) All right. Well, switching gears now to some of the other questions that we like to ask our guests here on the show. You have worked at a few different firms before Driehaus. I believe you were at Peak Six Investments and Raya Trading, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And you've worked with some really top investment professionals uh, during your career so far. So from your experience, what qualities do you think makes a good investment manager? Oh, that's a good question. What I've noticed with the people either at Driehaus or previously, or just in general, colleagues and industry folk that I admire and feel like I can learn from you kind of have to have a hunger to learn, you know, like a thirst for knowledge. I think it's not surprising that people with intellectual curiosity can thrive in in the financial markets. They can, you know, they have the willingness and the desire to kind of dig deep into things and, and go down rabbit holes and just for their own curiosity, which always or which often can have positive outcomes on a professional basis. I think the other, I guess, two things that I always try and keep in mind, one is really the ability to adapt and to change. Because one thing is for certain is the financial markets are going to change. You know, environments change. What works is going to change. Opportunity sets are going to change. So, you know, not being wed to only one way to to look at things or to capitalize on things, I think, is critically important. And then I guess the last part that for me has been really helpful and kind of ties to the other two is 
sometimes it's just really important to listen. You know, there's a lot of people talking out there. There's a lot of things to read. There's a lot of opinions. You know, the financial markets are being covered by no shortage of people. So being able to kind of really listen, distill the opinions and kind of create your own original theses out of some of the stuff that you're hearing, I think is really important to being able to, you know, adapt in the markets. I mean, you know, in my almost 20 year career alone, like massive changes have been undertaken, whether it's technology, whether it's openness, whether it's the focus of shareholders, you know, there's just always something changing. So you really got to be willing to adapt and listen and learn. Sounds good. Hey, so another question we've been asking of late, which has been a real favorite of mine is, so in our profession, we all have an obligation to perform at a high level. So how do you maintain your health, both physical and mental, to ensure that you are performing at a high level? Oh, interesting. Yeah, a lot of dialogue, a lot of discourse. I mean, whether we're doing it internally here at the firm or I'm doing it with colleagues or, you know, just I like to get in early and kind of clear, clear all the kind of basic stuff out of the way, oftentimes before other people are getting in. So, you know, my kind of morning routine of having my coffee and, and catching up on all my reading, you know, that's that's something that I think kind of sets me off on the right foot. But yeah, I mean, whether it's, you know, staying mentally or physically fit, you know, exercising, making sure that I'm getting outside, just, you know, it's in this job, it's kind of hard to really get away. But being able to give yourself some time as well, you know, not at the detriment of the work, but just for your own, you know, wellness, I think is, is really important so that you don't feel, you know, too burnt out. Yeah. I've loved that. Uh, the answers on that we've had uh, ranged from somebody having a morning routine that sounded like that, that's not a morning routine. That's like a day routine. <laughs> what time do you get up? Like at 2am to a couple of people who said, I don't do anything. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I, it's funny. I think some people just love to hit the ground running, you know, like get in and then go, go, go. And some people just like to build up a little bit, let it percolate. Yeah. You know, although, you know, sometimes my mornings aren't, aren't necessarily up to me when I start, you know, when you have a little kid, sometimes they dictate what's going on. <laughs> oh yeah, <Very> absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, one more before we let you go. And that is, do you have any content recommendations for advisors, investors, books, podcasts, newsletters, hmm. anything like that? On the book front, there's so much out there. I mean, I just think, you know, pick up a book and start reading. And if it's grabbing your attention, go with it. And if it's not speaking to you, you can, it's okay to put it down and then go on. That's to the, the key right there. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, is absolutely- yeah, it took me a while to come to grips with that. I always used to force myself to finish books. And, and then one day I just said, wait a second, you know, it's okay to just read 80 pages on something if I'm not interested or if it's not clicking content. There's, there's so much content out there. There's some, there's so many great podcasts as I'm sure you guys are aware. I, uh, we, we on our team here are big fans of econ talk. That's the podcast I'd, I'd mention hardcore history. The Dan Carlin stuff is great. Just the ability to deep dive into something so meticulously is pretty impressive. And then, you know, something that maybe, I don't know if you get the, this answer a lot, but just reading some CEO outlooks, you know, because once a year they get the opportunity to kind of talk to their shareholders and to people and lay out their vision and what they're seeing currently. And they obviously have an agenda, but they're also tasked with providing the insight. So, you know, I think there's really so much out there. It's, it's pretty impressive. Sometimes it can be overwhelming and you can certainly go down some, some rabbit holes, but. Do you have favorite CEOs that you like to read? No, I mean, I, I, I not one that I would call out. I think there are, there are yep. certainly many that are, are great. And I think it's just fascinating to watch 
how you know they have to manage it in the public eye. It's 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 no easy task, and some don't do it very well. Some do it excellently. You know, it's yeah, it's yeah. impressive when when you get someone who does have the vision and they do see it see the ball well. That's that's really encouraging. I mean, that's a lot of what we're doing when we're looking at companies. You know, we get to know the management teams. We dig deep into them. We want to make sure that they're you know sound capital allocators that they're thinking correctly about risks and and opportunities. And yeah, so I think. You get a lot of these letters that you can go through. You know, on the on the reading front, it's interesting. Increasingly, I find myself listening to my books. That's been kind of a, a little bit of a shift. That's been interesting. Just you know, I used to take a lot of notes, and now I do less of that. But I'll you know flag stuff or annotate. Say, okay, this mark, I was interested in this, and kind of revisit things on the fly. Yeah, right on. Good stuff. All right. Well, Yoav, it's been really great to have you on the show today. How can listeners stay in touch and learn more about you and the latest thinking at Driehouse? Yeah, we uh, we put out quarterly commentaries. We have our website at drios.com where they can see all the stuff related to our adventure and strategies as well as our other strategies. We have a Twitter feed, DCM Twitter, that they can check out as well. And then, you know, myself and my colleagues, like I said, we put out either ad hoc pieces or quarterly commentaries related to what we're seeing in the event-driven space and, you know, obviously more broadly in the markets. But yeah, certainly happy to engage as always. And it is great being on. I appreciate your guys' time. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. And, you know, I'm sure we'll see each other sometime, not only around the industry, but in a Nebraska Northwestern game. Yeah. And, you know, it was right. a slam dunk for this year's game. It's in Ireland. I said, I'm going to that. I'm going to that. But I'm not going really to cool. it now. That's quite a quite a setup. I don't know how they got to Nebraska Northwestern, but it looks like it's going to be a pretty, pretty wonderful uh, setting out there. Yeah, that'll be awesome. Well, again, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Well, that is going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final words. Stay balanced and stay the course. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine and thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Strategist at Orion Advisor Solutions and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com. All opinions expressed by Rusty Vanneman and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information that participants consider reliable.